Episode 11 Chapter 2 The situation of the town did not change much over the next three or four days. The trends of the first two days of the power outage deepened. The town was effectively cut off from the outside world, as were cities, towns and villages all over the UK, the group imagined, and probably beyond too, from what they could glean from Joe's brief panic-filled transmission, and the likewise brief snippets from the news, and from messages that other townspeople had received. The handful of amateur radios, the only radios to both survive the EMP and to be suitable for long-distance communication, were restricted for use by the mayor and police department. The mayor was trying to keep a tight control on information and the town alike. Relaxation of the former could easily lead to loss of the latter. So, apart from a few confused shards of information to be gleaned from this source and that and passed on by word of mouth, the town was in the dark. Figuratively and, after nightfall, literally. A few people made the journey to neighbouring settlements on bicycle, furtively, in defiance of the lockdown, weaving through the stalled cars. But the situation there in no way differed from that of the town. For those who had no family or friends within bicycle range, it was an exercise in futility. The food shops emptied, Chris's among them, and by the end of the third day, every single shop or public building in the city was boarded up with the exception of the town hall, the hospitals and the police buildings. The barely containable rush on the shops of the first few days ground to a halt for want of further supplies to fuel it. The police got a grip on the situation and were attempting to enforce lockdown rules with modest success. The frenzy of the first few days, already muted by disbelief, gave way to two main moods. Semi-complacent torpor competed with the restless, fretful, barely dormant volcano of panicked activity. The mayor was trying to encourage the first trend while he scrambled to figure out what on earth was going on and just how bad it was. The two moods washed over the town in waves, while most people waited to see which would prevail. Would power be restored? or, which amounted to much the same thing, would the townspeople pull together? Or would the volcano erupt and overwhelm them all, flinging the town into chaos? While the town held its breath, the group's days passed much the same way as the first two had done. At surface level, anyway. Chris closed up shop around midday on Tuesday, as expected, and joined the idling of the other five. Unable to spend much time outside and with no internet, the six of them flitted from activity to activity as they awaited news from the outside world. Dorian, as expected, was having the time of his life after a day spent painting, half a day sleeping, an afternoon drumming and a night watching the aurora, the trend continued. The aurora brought on an artistic mood and naturally had to be painted, which took up most of the third day. 
This was followed by half a day of writing poetry, which he then recited to the group to the accompaniment of his guitar. The remainder of the day was given to reading about astrology and its role in various mythologies, on which he had a few books. He spiced up these few days with various sundry experiments. For instance, he had always wanted to know whether a person asleep with their hand in a bowl of water would actually pee himself. It sounded like an urban legend. Too good to be true. He had to find out for himself. Turns out the answer was a resounding yes. At least if one could form a generalisation from Bruce's physiology. On the morning of the fifth day, he went up to Alfred and shrewdly asked him, in the hearing of everyone, whether they had enough candles and matches. Alfred chuckled and assured them that they had enough for years. If you say so, then you won't need any more, Dorian replied and disappeared for two hours. He returned with a vast quantity of matches, obtained from goodness knows where. Alfred could not backtrack on his confident assessment and so Dorian had to be allowed to keep his stash. He then spent the rest of the day using it to build a vast monument. So he was set. Martin and Alfred retreated into chess and reading from Alfred's well-stocked library. Being Alfred's library, its contents aligned most closely with Alfred's interests. Sociology, psychology, politics but also had a decent section on various religions, an interest of all three members of Flat 4. Those of the occupants of Flat 3, however, were not represented. Clive tended to read about things that did not really interest the others, Dorian partially accepted, and he found almost all his material online. He did take occasional trips to the university library, but that option was clearly out at the moment. He therefore struggled to glean what he could from Alfred's library. Admittedly, Alfred did have some quality stuff on an impressive range of subjects, but their overlap with what fell within Clive's orbit of interest was slight. Clive supposed he would just have to adapt and learn about topics outside the orbit, but hopefully it would not come to that. The situation would be cleared up, power would be restored, he repeated this to himself, almost as a mantra, whenever he got bored or thought of his beautiful PS6 or a warm shower, or any shower frankly, or cooked food, or his phone, especially his phone. The twitch in his hands and especially his two thumbs had all but subsided into a dull, perpetual ache. Much like clinical depression, that varies in intensity but which maintains a constant presence, weighing one down and always saying, Don't think I will ever abandon you. I am here to stay, forever. But again, the situation will be cleared up and power will be restored. The situation will be cleared up and power will be restored. And so it went on, for four heavy days of heavy reading of heavy books with the nag of his phone heavy upon his mind, alleviated only occasionally by conversations and occurrences in the group, originating mostly from Dorian. By the fifth day, he had had enough, 
and spent most of it with Dorian, constructing the monument from matches. Bruce and Chris fared similarly, slightly overlapping orbits, reading, nag of the phone, heaviness, alleviations. Like Clive, they had an increasingly hard time of it, though for different reasons. Both were active men in their own way. Chris was used to spending the day on his feet in his shop, attending to all the minor needs of his business and punctuating the day with a stream of chit-chat with his loyal customers. Though Chris never thought of it that way, it was basically one single conversation that waxed and waned with each shopper supplying his or her own little addition. The weather, politics, only headline stuff, mind you. Children and grandchildren, holidays, and finally the pandemic. Or rather, pandemics. Part of his Sundays he spent gaming with Clive, Dorian and Bruce. But he always made sure to go on a long, long walk. In his summer holidays he would go hiking and fishing. Yet now he was stuck indoors, reading thrillers and hoping Dorian would initiate some activity worth joining. So, after five days, with his shop being now indefinitely closed, he was starting to champ, but not as visibly as Bruce. Bruce, with his inhuman schedule relieved by intense vegging, was starting to simmer. More than half a work week gone, wasted, and without even the PS6 or the telly as a consolation prize. Thrillers and murder mysteries were all very well, but for five days and counting? At least there were about a dozen or so light novels in the flat, which may as well have been a library all on its own to Bruce, who had not read a dozen books in the four years since leaving university. By day five, he was ready to vary things up and join Dorian's construction project together with Clive and Chris. Perhaps the most curious and unexpected development of these five days was the group's increasing reliance on Dorian for activities. Hitherto, their attitude towards him had been one of amused toleration of his views and his quirks, paired with a certain fascination for his weird and wonderful way of life and his amazing stories and impressions. He spiced things up, but what before had been a pleasant and occasionally annoying extra was on the way towards becoming a necessity. Their approach to life, shut in without power, chess, books, the odd conversation, grew stale. His did not. So far, he had consistently come up with quality activities that could absorb one for hours on end, and he had done so at a rate of over one a day. They were passing the time. He was using it to create experiences, not to mention some impressive artwork. Most of the sixth day passed likewise. Martin and Alfred played three colossal games of chess, and the others worked on the monument. Dorian's only rule was that it had to look vaguely like a building in a kind of mythical sense, you know, 
They did not really know, but kept at it for most of the day regardless. By mid-afternoon all the matches had been used and the mythical building had sprouted turrets and domes and prongs in all directions. It was just as well. Their interest had been spent along with the matches. The nag of their phones intensified into a throb of the fingers, like a faint headache that has been pushed too far by hours in front of the glare of a monitor. The concentrated work of the previous day gave way to increasingly desultory bursts of activity, interspersed with the odd directionless wander through the flat, semi-consciously looking for something new. Just before the completion of the mythical monument, or the demise of its building material and appeal, it is debatable which description is more applicable, Martin stood up from the chessboard, with an air of finality. Enough. That's 15 games we've played. 8-5 to you. And only a couple have been under two hours. I'm chest out for the month, as Bruce would probably say. Except that he would say that after a single one of our two-hour games. True. Or halfway through it. I need a break from all of this heavy mental activity, Alfred. Unlike you, I don't spend my days in research or considering intellectual problems, but in trying to convince teenagers to see the point of learning about dead people, as they put it. Don't downplay the importance of teaching history. You perform an extremely important function in society. Well, thank you, Alfred. Martin was a bit taken aback. You are not usually the one to dish out the compliments. I only complimented your profession. Alfred amended with a grin. Of course. Grin answered grin. But from what I can see, you're doing a good job. Hopefully you can get back to it soon. Thank you. I hope so too. I wonder what my students are doing, how they are coping with the situation. Like Clive and Bruce, I imagine, only worse. At least all of us have grown up and have our interests and a greater attention span. And we have Dorian. All most of today's teenagers have are their phones, especially under the lockdown. They really do, don't they? I was talking to my GCSE group the other day when they had had enough of the causes of the First World War and I wanted to recapture their interest. I asked them how many hours a day they spent on their phone on average. They answered four, five, seven. And that was only because they have school and homework. Over the weekend or the holidays, it's eight, ten, eleven. Only one girl said less than six, and one boy said fourteen. Fourteen! That's practically the whole day from getting up to going to bed. Yes, the average British teenager spends nine or ten hours a day on his or her phone. The numbers soared during COVID-19 and never went back down again. The current pandemic wasn't helping. Wasn't? Alfred pointed at the defunct light bulb above them. There are no phones now. 
the solar storm did what no parent or teacher could. I wonder how they're getting on. Martin asked again. How do you think? Like addicts in full withdrawal. Come on, Alfred, that's a bit much. Is it? When you next have class with them, ask them how hard it was without their phones for a week or weeks. Ask them what they did with their time. That will be an interesting topic. You would enjoy that yourself as a sociologist. Very much so. If it weren't a history class, I might ask you to bring me in as a guest to lead a discussion or something of the sort. That would be fun, but yes, I can't hijack history class like that. I have a curriculum to get through. Still, you can discuss it for ten minutes or so, and then tell me what they said. If you get the chance, that is. You don't actually think. I'm not sure, but I do think there's a decent chance you'll never teach them again, yes. You're not... That's a bit extreme, don't you think? I hope you're right, but things don't look promising. The chance of it is increasing every day. The reflective silence that ensued upon Alfred's sombre statement was interrupted by the entry of Bruce and Clive.